to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And here we are at episode 165. This is episode 165. And as always, if you have any questions or comments, you can fee- uh, feel free to email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com. kbmakel at aol.com. Or you can leave them in the comments section on Podbean. Well, I do have to say, there's a lot of stuff going on. And really, there's no uh, good news. Um, I did have a question that I'll put up. Somebody asked me to explain why do you think chemical weapons will be used in the Ukraine. Uh, I just think that they're looking for anything they can do to break a stalemate. Um, It's very troubling. I know it's not on most people's radar anymore. People just sort of ignore it. But... uh, If you've been following any of the Ukraine news, you know that um, Russia has been refurbishing decades-old, in some cases 60-year-old, T-62 tanks for use in the front line in uh, Ukraine. They would only do this if they're running out of armor. And face it, once they run out of armor, what other options do they have but to use some sort of a stalemate-breaking weapon? Um, I believe that'll be chemical weapons. Um, There's a lot of, you know, there's, I I don't know if this war of attrition is just going to keep going on. There's not a lot of movement in the front lines. And it's kind of back and forth. Um, You know, something is going to break it. I mean, I don't think we're going to be in a World War I situation where it's going to drag on for four or five years. Um, Something's going to happen And something very bad might happen ahead of time. And neither side wants to negotiate at this point. They're just not going to realistically negotiate. So consequently, I think chemical weapons are much closer to being used now than at any other, other time in this whole thing. Which, you know, will now create a diplomatic crisis for NATO. What are you supposed to do? Just stand by and let it happen? That's the most probable, but you know how that is. Sometimes the most probable things don't happen. So we we could be in a big, big trouble, big, big trouble with an international crisis that spirals out of control. And that's what this is in danger of doing, spiraling out of control. So, you know, keep, keep your eyes and ears tuned because Ukraine is not just going to be a status quo. This this just isn't going to grind to a halt and go away. Um, the majority of the history of this conflict has yet to be written. Uh, just kind of go there. Uh, another, another big thing is Marine snipers are no more. Um, well... You know, they do have designated marksmen who I consider to be snipers. Uh, The sniper teams that they had for, they were really scouts and reconnaissance. I I think they're they're reorganizing that. And and it's clear to me the value they see is more in the reconnaissance role than in the sniping role of, you know, eliminating a high-value target at you know, a thousand yards. Uh, they, I don't know that they see that that's going to be the tactical reality that they're facing. So we'll see how this goes. You know, sniper programs and sniping are always something to go on the block. 
and we, they have to be recreated. They had to be created for World War One. They had to be kind of recreated for World War Two and and uh, Korea. Then it was you know put on the shelf and then recreated again for Vietnam. Then put on the shelf and then recreated later. Um, you know it's it's amazing a lot and a lot of that the shooting part of that kind of resides in the things like the Army Marksmanship Unit and and places such as that. So um, that's really what we're looking at. That's really what we're looking at. Um, you know, the Army Marksmanship Unit, I was told, I was in there. I did not go to Grenada, but I was in the military at the time. And they were, um, they were actually alerted to go provide sniping capability in Grenada should it be needed. Um, that would have been a very bad idea because competitive shooters I know a lot of them like to think that they're sniper material anyway but they're not you know it's just not so that would have been a very bad idea but at the time that was kind of the only conventional uh, sniper capability that was that was around um, the the art 2 scope automatic ranging telescope uh, that, that was used on the accurized M14 in the Vietnam War was was not a good was not a great idea. The Army basically abandoned it in the 70s uh, and never really replaced it with anything until the uh, M24 system came out in the 80s. So uh, with the M24, the introduction of that, they kind of brought back sniping. But uh, in peacetime, it, it always gets de-emphasized and it always goes away. And then it's usually under the tactical need that it's brought back so see what happens but right now it looks like the marine snipers are uh, gonna become marine scouts instead and so we'll see I don't know about the rest of you but I've been watching this January 6 footage and, and I've only come to the conclusion that I was correct this was not an insurrection this was not even a riot. What it really was, was there was some vandalism. There was disobedience. But compared to the BLM riots and Antifa riots, it was pretty benign. I mean, the only thing that made it noteworthy was the fact it happened at the Capitol. And um, frankly, you know, I'm like most people, I've the bloom is off the rose for all that. I, I don't believe that our politicians are out there for the people. I think they're out there for themselves. So, But it's clear that, that participants have been unjustly targeted, incarcerated, and pursued by a weaponized and partisan justice system that's run by people who are bigger criminals than any January 6th. Um, participant and you know when you do that you you become you come down on the wrong side a lot of things when you weaponize the government against citizens whom you just happen to disagree with uh, there's never been a real good case of that in history and we can look back to the Second World War and other places uh, for that so the January 6th lies are now being exposed by all the videotape that was there, the people who claim police officers were killed were lying to you. The people that claimed all these other things are lying to you. 
you know, that, that, that foolish QAnon shaman guy was just wandering around <laughs> aimlessly. And, and it showed that they were opening doors for him, letting him go around. And it's like, it's very bizarre. Um, the murder of Ashley Babbitt, that the only person actually killed on January 6th, and she was murdered by a dirtbag Capitol Police officer who's one of the, like a police captain or something. Um, that That is something that should have been pursued, and it never was. Legally, the guy has now gotten away with murder. And I mean, it is pretty horrific when that happens. We had one of our citizens unjustly murdered in the United States Capitol. What a, that, to me, is the black mark of that day. The rest of it was just nonsense. But it goes back to what I'm saying. You will never catch me near something like that. The, the juice isn't worth the squeeze. They were, they were never going to... They were protesting a rigged election, a stolen election. And, and they were right to do that. They had the right to do that. But it was never going to change anything. So in some cases, why bother? I mean, the fix was in, it was done, and uh, you even see trash, the, the sites that are run by people who are trash, just vermin, excrement, whatever you want to say, and it's YouTube, it's Facebook, it's all these, it's all these things, uh, the ones that, that, that refuse to acknowledge even the possibility that there might have been a legitimate claim that the election was tampered with. They refuse it. Just like they refuse any any COVID vaccine uh, criticism. I mean, it's, it's the same thing. It's it's just so bad. And and they now they say, well, there are unfounded claims of, of uh, tampering in the 2020 election. Well, that's because no one would investigate any of the claims made by anyone. Of course it's unfounded because no one investigated it. They ran, they shirked their duty and ran from it because they knew what they would discover would be historic in a bad sense and uh, would taint the political system. And so they just looked the other way. It's, it's never thought I'd see that day, but, but it's come. Speaking of looking the other way, um, am I the only person fed up with China? I mean, these people, we now know that they turned the Wuhan thing loose. Now, they're going to say it was an accident. Well, first of all, they'll never admit that it actually ever happened. And then they'll they'll say that... Uh, <sighs> then they'll say it was an accident. They'll never admit they turned that stuff loose in some psychotic uh, bid to, you know, who knows what, eugenics or something, get rid of all the old people or something. I don't know what it was. But anyway, this thing got loose in China. And anybody with a brain would know, gee, there's a virology lab that's doing all this research. and and But the, the Wuhan virus came out of the wet market, you know, because they have dead things there. And everybody knows dead things there carry disease and, you know, nobody with a brain believed that. Now it's come out, and no one's really 
holding the Chinese accountable. I think the Chinese should be held accountable. They should be sanctioned. They should be treated like the international criminals and brigands that they are. And people are now just starting to get in on Fauci, realizing what a jerk he is, because he covered for all this. Now he should go to jail. He should definitely go to jail. Now somebody who's actually already in jail, <laughs> a psychological jail, if you will, is Senaturkey John Fetterman. Now Senaturkey Fetterman um, is, is a zombie, and we've said it before. He is now in a, some sort of a mental hospital, suffering from depression and the after effects of some sort of a stroke he's had. I mean, he's literally completely ineffectual. He is, in some ways, it's great that he was actually elected from Pennsylvania because now there's no way this guy has the mental capacity to, to get back to Capitol Hill and vote. I mean, he just doesn't have it. And, uh, you know, I think the people of Pennsylvania should look and go, hmm, I think this is terrible. Absolutely terrible what they've done. Um, the Democratic political machine will use a person until there's literally nothing left. And that's what they've done with Fetterman. Anybody who actually would have cared about this person on a on a human level would have told him not to run, would have told him, you know, not to do this to himself. But now he's managed to, they've, they've got the seat, quote unquote. Um, it's going to be pretty, the end of this is going to be very ugly and horrible. It just, just saying. And speaking kind of the last thing on politics, it's going to be a real brawl and a real free-for-all in 2024. I mean, look how things are just kind of shaping up. Um, I, I, you, you'd have to be very, very um, naive to think that Antifa and all these other people are not going to take the streets. As, as rancorous as the political discourse will be, there's going to be a lot of violence. People thought it would happen in 2022, but I think hold on to your hats for 2024. That's going to be that's going to be the real show. So the question you can ask yourself is how how do I cope with all this? How do I cope with all that? Um, I, I would say that I would stay away from political gatherings. Um, we as much as you want to support it. And do all that. I mean, that's look what January 6th turned into. Um, stay away from those. I would also be very careful of your travel in areas where you think you might be singled out for your appearance or anything else that would cause the hostile crowd of victims. And, and there's every group now in the United States is a victim. But if you are seen as one of the non-victims by the victims... Uh, face it, you're you're going to get attacked. Um, that that's a strong possibility. Um, you know, I just don't know what else to say about that. I mean, stay away from neighborhoods, from areas where you think that hey, you know, people just might come out with rocks and 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 sticks and and guns and everything else and and attack you because that will happen. That will happen. 
we are on the verge of of just anarchy and and people don't realize how dangerous this is everybody just kind of wants to watch you know their their reality shows and 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 blabber about nonsensical stuff like the super bowl and all that but the truth of the matter is we are on the verge of massive massive uh chaos and you know i I'm saying this not because I want to see it, not because I like it, but because I think there's a very strong possibility it exists. And why do you think Biden is pushing so hard to try to restrict guns? Why do you think? You know, it's amazing that the talk that comes out of the now, it, a few months ago, it was all background checks, background check, background check, background check. And, and you know, I, I if I could ask senior uh juan biden a a simple question the simple question would be are you willing to strengthen background checks enough so that your criminal son hunter biden can't buy a gun with his criminal drug abusing past um hunter biden was able to buy a gun remember it's when he was dating his brother's widow his sister-in-law whose husband had died now i mean this is so creepy you couldn't make it up so he's dating his deceased brother's wife while he's still married to his while hunter is still married to his wife by the way so they're doing that and of course he's mentally unstable he's a criminal he's a he's a drug abuser he managed to pass a background check and buy a gun in which case his sister-in-law <laughs> his sister-in-law paramour girlfriend whatever she is kind of raised a red flag and remember he threw it in a dumpster next to a school now you know I, I don't know about you but somebody who's got a family history of of negligent behavior like that i'm not going to listen to on gun policy i'm not going to listen to him Biden doesn't know anything. Look at his own family. And, uh, you know, this is the same idiot who, when he had some mental faculties, which I don't think he had very many of, but, you know, he was the one about use a shotgun. If you actually did what Joe Biden said, you'd be in jail with the use a shotgun, fire it at, you know, fire it up in the air. All, all this is freaking nonsense. It is freaking nonsense. And, and here's the proof you need. And this is all you need to know. Do you remember those BLM scum that stormed the neighborhood in St. Louis? Which was a neighborhood where people bought houses and they they basically uh, uh, were reha had rehabbed these houses into nice homes. They were older homes, nice homes. The McCloskeys were part of it. And some of those homes were, were pretty large and pretty substantial and they looked nice when they're rehabbed. Well, when the BLM scum stormed the gate, broke it down, and started surging into that community, you know, they did not step one foot on the McCluskey's property because he had a rifle with a 30-round magazine. And he had a mean-looking AR-style rifle, and he had a 30-round magazine. And that kept those hordes off his porch off his yard yeah they can 
they can uh, you know scream their nonsense from the street from it's not even a public street it was a private street from what I understand so they, they were actually on property they didn't need to be on um, and shouldn't have been on but anyway you know who knows they see something that looks like a it represents wealth and they probably would have trashed it because that's what they do they, they trash things look at look at the neighborhoods and everything else that were victims of these riots you know people burning down the places where they have to buy groceries and work and everything else but that 30 round magazine in that rifle kept them off and uh, there's a reason why Biden is trying to push for an assault weapons ban which right now he's not gonna get thank God nor is he gonna you know he's losing enough senators to old age and and mental problems and you know Feinstein and Fetter Fetter zombie and and the rest of these he's losing enough of these that he uh, he's not gonna get it through the Senate either so um, you know it, it's it's absolutely incredible that a leader would just want to expose his people to that kind of violence because that's what it is let me tell you something um, if if that guy McCloskey had had a double barrel shotgun yeah it might have kept him off but I doubt it because once the two shots are over it's over if he had a manually operated 3030 I don't think he could have kept him off but boy they respected that AR to me the AR man it is a divine instrument that has been that has been given to us because you can actually defend yourself against these absolute hordes of evil freaking people and they're absolute evil okay let's get to some questions and answers uh, we had um, probably one of the most interesting questions and there's no really right answer to this uh, came came in and it's I need to carry concealed in non-gun friendly states how should I carry and the background of this is um, this gentleman has to go up and down the East Coast for his job you know I mean hey we all have to work we all have to keep breakfast on the table and and uh, you know keep keep going so he he has to travel up and down now you know the East Coast is a patchwork of gun laws just a patchwork of them so some and many of them are very very restrictive so what, what should you do should you just be disarmed and absolutely uh, vulnerable in in these states or what can you do uh, the only thing I can think to do is try to be as legal as possible uh, because in gun unfriendly states the gun even if you're using it to defend your person and everything else makes you the criminal not the not the perpetrator you know the you know the zero bail perpetrator with a rap sheet that's you know longer than anybody's arm um, they're gonna be treated they're being treated like heroes right now they're being treated like heroes and law-abiding people are being treated like the criminal so uh, here's what I would do I would stay as legal as possible uh, I would even I would even go so far as to say check the ammunition regulations I think it's New Jersey does not allow hollow points so you know 
choose your ammo accordingly. It kind of goes back to a couple podcasts ago where I said maybe 9mm FMJ NATO, 124 NATO, isn't that bad a choice after all. Um, so you could you could definitely do that. Uh, one is get, check on the resp, I always screw up this word, rep, rep, <laughs> see where the reciprocal agreements are with other states as far as concealed carry from your home state so that you would at least know which states you can carry in legally. For the other states, I would then see what their transportation of a firearm um, actually is. Sometimes, sometimes it's, you know, locked in a case, in the, in the trunk, you know, all the rest of that. So, you know, I would abide in each state. And it, if I had to pull over at a rest stop right before I entered the non-permissive state and lock my gun up, that, that's probably what I would do. Uh, the other thing I would do is get myself for those states. If you want something at hand, I would get something non-lethal. Um, in one of my vehicles, I have a... <laughs> they don't sell them anymore because... <laughs> Because inner city baseball fans were beating each other to death with them. Um, they used to sell those little souvenir bats that were about, I guess, 18 inches long or so. Um, it looked like a little, it's a miniature baseball bat. And uh, they used to sell them at ballparks until they found out that, you know, people were beating each other with them. Um, but anyway, you can find those things in like secondhand stores for a dollar or two. I think mine says San Diego Padres or something. But I carry one of those so I can reach over, grab it, and whack somebody if they start reaching in my car. Um, the pepper sprays and all that have, they have some other um, legal implications sometimes. But, um, you know, all those non-lethal measures are something you need to look into. Um, very few places, especially if you have a folding knife, um, very few places will really wrap you up for that. Hey, I got a knife in my car. Hey, the guy was reaching in my car trying to strangle me. I looked over, I saw this knife, and I picked it up, and I was able to free myself. Um, you know, that kind of stuff is is something that you might have to go with. And maybe your firearm is something that when you're in a hotel or a motel, um, you've got it ready because, you know, you can in that state. So that's what that's what I would do. It is not a simple problem. It is a complex problem, and it re requires a, a spectrum of solutions. There's no one single solution. You could say, I'll just carry, let the laws be damned. Um, if you think that way, I would say that's, first of all, you're constitutionally correct and sound. But unfortunately, uh, not all laws are constitutional, and, and the courts are not kicking out enough unconstitutional laws so uh, you will be you will be brought up I would suggest reading any of the books that talk about post shooting uh, stuff um, starting with in the gravest extreme with Masada Ayub I realize that's probably dated pretty much by now but at least it gives you a background of you know after you shoot, so it's not like the movies. Hey, you shoot the bad guy, and everybody just stands around and, you know, kind of drinks coffee and smokes and jokes. No, um, in some ways that that whole episode is just beginning, and it's going to be 
criminal charges and then it's going to be even if it's a righteous shooting criminally uh the thugs family is going to sue you because some lawyer will get a hold of them and they'll sue you personally so um you know you have to you have to be ready that there's going to be a lot of legal ramifications and it's going to be a much harder hill to climb if you're in a gun unfriendly state because chances are uh their laws on concealed carrying carrying and, and everything else self-defense um there's there's a really good chance that you would be in violation of their criminal deal and then which case you know you're at the you're at the mercy of the most corrupt aspect of our judicial system so you know they'll they'll spend these liberal you you've seen it these liberal da's will spend millions of dollars to put really a decent citizen behind bars and they'll let the scumbags walk free i mean you just you see it all the time see it all the time um the best advice i could give is get get some other kind of job um you know there are a lot of gun friendly states a lot of places with castle doctrine a lot of places where you can stand your ground and you know you're the safest you're ever going to be in those places you're the unsafest in the other places okay Let's go for another question. Tesis, 45 ACP breaks. I, I couldn't really find anything on the internet. I, I saw, a, a, heard a blurb about this. Apparently it was one of the, it's not one of the GI model guns. Although I don't know that that really makes a difference because I think they, they're all fundamentally the same. It's just how they're, they're finished and, and put together. I guess this was one of the adjustable site, you know, models. Um, you know, a single slide breaking, or a, I'm sorry, it wasn't a slide, it was a frame. A single frame breaking is not a big deal. It is not a, you know, it's just not a big deal. Um, now, if you have 20 of them doing that, then, then you have cause for concern. But when there's a single instance and it spreads over the internet like wildfire, um, or it spreads, the, the people who spread it, are the people who don't like the gun anyway. They either don't like 1911s, they don't like Tesis guns, or both, uh, they don't like lower-priced guns, they don't like guns that may have a cast receiver, even though we've proven for 70, 80 years now that, that a cast receiver can be as good as a forged receiver. That there can be no difference. What, it's heat treating and machining that make the difference. Um, so we have all these these things and and everybody wants to kind of pile on i mean remember the beretta slide thing i mean you know everybody was oh beretta slides are bad 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 and it turns out it was such a tiny percentage it wasn't even uh statistically it wasn't even important at all so anyway um same thing with this thesis thing you know um you want a 1911 thesis is a about the best prices you're going to get. Uh, you get the GI one. I've seen those on special for like 400, 399, you know, 400 bucks. Um, that's one great deal. That's a great deal. I have not shot one, but I've seen one. Um, I really like them. If I needed a 1911 today, 
and I wanted a GI style 1911 A1 today, uh, that there'd already be the order in for the thesis. I mean, it is just that good. It is just that good. So that's that's what I would say to people. Um, you know, be a be a very be very wary about the stuff that runs rampant on the internet. There are a lot of gun snobs out there who don't like thesis. There are a lot of gun snobs out there that don't like the Canics and some of these other guns. Uh, but they, they usually run pretty well. Now you can potentially get a lemon. You know, a lot of a gun's price is in the quality assurance and inspections that human work, because human labor is very expensive, that goes into it. So, um, you know, if you buy a Dan Wesson 45, you can expect um, you can expect a very, very good and probably have fewer issues out of the box. Although I would say, and uh, this is going back two years now, but uh, we in the family bought two SIG P210 target models and the first one, no issues. Absolutely, totally great. The second one, it's actually a, a very great gun too, except the front sight fell off. Now you're buying $1,400 pistol. I, I I called Sig, and and you know I'm pretty I'm pretty plain spoken. I mean I'm not nasty, but I'm plain spoken. And I said this is your flagship gun, and this happened. And there was a an awkward silence, and they said send it to us immediately. Um, they paid for the shipping. And they literally had it back in less than a week with the site replaced and everything. I mean, they were, the guy I spoke to, and it, the good part was it wasn't just a call center or something else. It was obviously someone who worked for SIG and handled these kind of things. Um, they were very embarrassed that a gun this expensive. And I looked on their website and it said, hey, for factory repairs, our turnaround is four to six weeks and blah, blah, blah. Um, well, when you when you buy the top of the line, and this is the top of the line SIG, there's no there's no better SIG than this. Um, you know, they make an exception. Um, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money I put in. You know, I actually I don't even know if I told them I bought two. Maybe I did, but um, you know, that was three thousand twenty eight hundred dollars I put into their bank account. So I better get some service. I better get some really good service. So anyway, um, but, uh, you know, so anything can happen, even even a top of the line. Look at the pythons when they came out. There were some issues, you know, and, and for the most part, they get it all straightened out. I'm sure that whoever imports the TSIS guns probably replaced this one. That's a clear factory defect. I'm sure they replaced it. And, you know, just go from there. You just kind of move on from that. If you think uh, every gun should be perfect, go back and look at your car. How many recalls are on? Almost every car has some sort of a recall on it, no matter what. Uh, guns, that's very, very rare. It's actually quite rare. Okay, enough rambling on that. Let's go to the next thing. Yeah, this is this has been out for a long time. There's other stuff on this. Turkish 8mm Mauser ammo. Is it safe? Is it dangerous? Um, I think it kind of goes by the individual lot. Um, first of all, I would never use it in a semi-automatic or if you have a full automatic 8mm Mauser, do not use these. 
because don't use any corrosive ammunition in them to be honest um, it's just a, it's just a pain in the butt so don't do it do yourself a favor and um, use non-corrosive ammo the next thing is the Turkish ammo in particular um, is very hot ammo and it has blown apart some semi-automatic rifles it's probably blown apart some other things too um, maybe some MG42s who knows um, be very careful with Turkish ammunition I don't know and they attribute it to a lot of different things number one they attribute it to well it's the old style loading and the Turks loaded it hot to the original German specification so it's very hot ammo the other is well the powder has just become that the loads as they've aged have become hotter because of the characteristics of the powder and how it's sort of degraded over the years I, I don't know what the truth is but I do know that you're talking high 2800 low 2900 velocities for a 150 grain bullet coming out of a a rifle and you know that is that is like what an M4 does with a 55 grain bullet so that tells you this is very hot ammo um, 150 grain 762 NATO is about 2700 depending on the gun 2600 to 2700 feet per second it's supposed to be like 2800 but I don't know that it ever gets there um, so you have that and you're talking almost 100 to 250 feet per second faster than a 7.62 NATO so you know that's very very hot ammo um, so I wouldn't take the chance uh, you can try test fire it in a bolt action um, I actually have a crate of it that I bought years ago 1400 rounds and it was like under 100 bucks <laughs> there's obviously a reason for that um, a lot of this stuff is 1930s 1940s the 1930s ammo seems to be higher quality now that's just a, a general statement and it, your mileage may vary that seems to be a better alternative the worse alternative seems to be the stuff made in the 40s because the war was on and even though Turkey was not directly participating I'm sure they thought hey this the war could come to us so they'd ramped up production and may got a little sloppy so anyway that's what the uh, that's what the story on it is and uh, I would be very very careful I would be very 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 careful with this stuff at this point um, you could almost say it's it's more it's worth more as components um, you could pull the bullet put in a reasonable powder charge reseat the bullet and use it but it's still going to be corrosive because it's really the primers so if, if you know pay your money and take your choice uh, certainly 1400 eight millimeter bullets would be at under a hundred dollars would be worth <laughs> that that'd be worth it you could just pull the bullets and use those in new loads but you know that you could probably salvage what I would not do is you could pull the bullet take the powder out 
reduce weigh the powder charge and let's just say I don't know what it is but let's say it's 45 grains okay so you take five grain you load it to 40 grains you, you could probably do that but you know I'm not sure it's worth it I would just use better powder and there you go so yeah Turkish nine mil or uh, not my nine millimeter it's eight millimeter Mauser is uh, definitely um, yeah, just be careful with it. You just have to be, be very careful with it. Uh, we've gone over this before. What weapons do I need at my rural retreat property? Well, you, you need the weapons that you need. Um, if you live in an area, and it depends on, there, there's too many variables. I would say that as a very basic list, you need a, you, you need a 30 caliber rifle. And by 30 caliber, you could go to 7.62 by 39, but or a 3030, 30, something like that. I would also have a rifle that is like a varmint rifle, like a good heavy barrel AR that you could shoot long distance if your property supports that. Um, you need a shotgun. Those are always good to have. And a 22 is always good to have. That would be very basic long arms to have just uh the 30 caliber rifle in case you want to hunt in case you need to hunt the food supply kind of goes bad um you know a, a 5.56 is going to be difficult to bring down a large game animal it's been done but imagine that there's a feral bull beef bull running around and you're going to take it 556 is just not the thing you want uh, you're gonna want to get up close I, I wouldn't even really want 762 by 39 I still think you know 308 would be a better 762 NATO would be better but anyway um, that is really what you want uh, don't don't attempt to you know make it more complicated now when you're talking about defensive stuff depends on what the threats kind of are um, and maybe you need an AR for everyone depending on how many everyone you have <laughs> maybe you need some more 22s maybe you need you know a couple more shotguns living in certain parts of the country shotguns are are much more usable because of regulations and everything else so anyway um, but I would say you would need you would need those. You you basically need to be able to kill something the size of a large bull cat piece of cattle, you know, large bovine. You need to be able to kill something that big. And uh, and then everything else. I, I still think the varmint rifle is something that you really need because you could see something far away and need to hit it, you know, and need to kill it. I mean, if you've got a food plot. Uh, controlling raccoons and other things is going to be very very important because they're going to be hungry too and they're going to be looking at your food plot saying hey you know these these uh this orchard is is really nice or this big vegetable garden is really nice lots of eats in there and so uh depending on where that is and all that you need to be able to hit some something really flat shooting out to about 100 yards that's got some oomph behind it that a 22 doesn't have so um, those are really good. The other thing too is I would get caliber outside of 22 long rifle. I would get calibers I can reload. I, I'm not a real fan of 22 Magnum. The ammo is expensive and, and it's not really reloadable, practically speaking. 
So um, definitely, I think 556 is a better alternative to uh, to something like 22 Magnum. Uh, 762 NATO 308 is better than you know 270 Winchester or some other. You know, if if you've, you're going with a strictly commercial um, cartridge, uh, the cost the cost skyrockets. I mean, that just there's a reason nine millimeter and five five six are so they're dominating the market right now, just dominating it. And there's a reason. It's because ammo costs can still be somewhat controllable. And here's an example. Um, I bought a box. And it's actually sitting up here next to me somewhere. Uh, where is it? Here it is. Bought a box of federal gold metal with a burger bullet. 6.5 Creedmoor, 130 grains, federal premium. This is their match load. Gold, yeah, gold metal open tip match, 130 grain, all the good stuff. This box of ammo, 20 rounds cost $44 okay um, it is possible to get and I think if you look around under $20 you can get 20 rounds of 762 NATO 308 slash 308 150 grain FMJ you can get that for under under $20 you know you just you just do the math uh, the reason I got this is because my rifle shoots it particularly well, and I like keeping a stash of the super accurate ammo, um, just to have a stash of super accurate ammo. I don't fancy myself as sniping anyone or anything, but it's nice to know I have a tool that can reach out, and uh, I could definitely reach out with this. So uh, that's where I got that, but hey 6.5 Creedmoor is a civilian cartridge I know that there are a couple of military and police organizations that use it but face it we're not seeing any military surplus 6.5 Creedmoor so um, this stuff is expensive and you put a premium match bullet on it and it is even more expensive and it is it is no joke man it is no joke uh, it will separate you from your hard-earned cash um, I, I mean, you go into his, go into the box stores, and I, I don't go into as many as I, I used to, but, but face it, um, for every box of thirty-eight special, uh, you see ten or twelve or twenty boxes of nine millimeter. Even going into places, uh, you know, um, I don't know if Tractor Supply sells ammo. I don't believe they do, but they've they recently bought a chain that does called Orschlins. And Orschelin sells, you know, they, they sell 9mm, 5.56, a uh, couple different shotgun gauges, uh, 12s and 20s, 22 long rifle, uh, they'll occasionally have 40 Smith & Wesson or 45 ACP, but, you know, face it, um, the majority of what they sell is 5.56 and 9mm. Those are just dominating the market, it's just how it is right now, so... Anyway, enough rambling on ammo and what you need at your rural property. Okay, here is the next question. Are SBRs good defensive weapons? 
Hmm. I have to think about that. Um, I would say that, first of all, if, if you know me, I'm no fan of, because it has a shorter barrel, it's more cool and more effective. It may be, it may be that it's uh, more handy, but we seem to go into this deal that, you know, you're not a cool guy unless you have a short barreled version of whatever the standard weapon is. You know, you're much more cool if you have the XM-177 as opposed to an M16A1. You're just a cool guy. But the fact of the matter is your weapon is not as good, in my opinion. Now, it may be great for CQB and, and, and a few other things, but it's just not as effective. The next, the next aspect of all this is an SBR, if you use that terminology, an SBR is a class 3 weapon and using a class 3 weapon for defense is probably something that will put you on a radar screen that you don't want to be on. Um, you know if I have a <clears throat> let's just say I'm sitting here in my in my house somebody breaks in and you know it's an axe murderer and he's got a giant double-headed fire axe and he's charges towards me I shoot him with a regular AR-15. I shoot him with an AR-15. You know, 20-inch barrel AR-15. Bang, I shoot him. That's going to be a local matter. If I have an SBR that's registered with the ATF as a Class 3 weapon, does that indeed now bring the federal government into it on some level that I don't really want them involved with? All of a sudden now, is there additional scrutiny? I'm not sure. I would have to. I would have to actually look that up. But I would just say that, you know, to me, SBRs and, and class three weapons are recreational as opposed to defensive. Now, I will tell you that an SBR Thompson or an SBR, you know, HK. What was the uh, MP5 style gun? Um, now, they certainly have an appearance that could be a deterrent. I mean, I will certainly say that. But as far as being the the weapon that um, you know is going to be the most effective weapon that you could use, I don't think they are. So I I would say just because of the federal license, because of the tax stamp and all that, I would not use one. Now, if I don't have anything else available, of course, all bets are off. In fact, when I got the, uh, I was doing the paperwork to get one, uh, the police officer I was dealing with who did the fingerprints and all that, uh, very nice. Our local PD was really nice with that. Um, he basically said, hey, man, this is going to be great. Somebody breaks in on you, deal with them. And I said, man, I don't know if I'd do that with a class three. And he said, hey, if it's handy, use it. You know, they, these, these were good guys. They were, they were, they were, uh, they were super good dudes. They're pro, pro 2A, um, very, very good police officers. So anyway, um, I would be very hesitant to do that. We've had this question probably four times before. What is the best military bolt-action rifle? Uh, you know, it depends what you're doing with it. Um, they're all... I'm going to go out on the limb and say they're all basically good. Depends what... If you're shooting targets, I say the 03A3, 1903 Springfield, 
Um, those are very difficult to beat because they have windage adjustable sights, which a lot of military bolt actions don't have. Uh, you have to adjust the windage on the front sight with a punch, which is, if you've ever done that, it is not a fun process to do. And it is not the kind of process that you, it's not like you can change your windage either <laughs> very quickly. So um, it is uh, those two rifles, just by virtue of the fact they have that, I would say that, that yeah, that's the, that's the go-to. But the other ones are very, very good. And I've had a great time shooting well, and here's what I will also tell you. Here's, here's what I will also tell you about a windage adjustable rear sight. At 300 yards and in, from 0 to 300 yards, it doesn't matter. If, you're, if your bolt-action rifle, if the windage has been set on the front sight and you are, you are in there, uh, you're not going to get enough wind between 0 and 300 yards to make a difference. Beyond 300 yards, wind becomes a huge factor. And guys who can, there are a lot of guys who say they can dope the wind, but, you know, they can't because they're only shooting at 300 yards and in. Um, 300 yards is about the, uh, Jeff Cooper, who I've criticized a lot of things he's done, not, not really in a, in a mean way, but, you know, um, some of his stuff is, is, is there. But um, one of the things he said that has made the most sense to me is, effectively you're wasting a rifle if you shoot it under 300 yards that really the test of a rifle is what's it do at 300 yards you know if you you know and all these guys who brag about whatever weapon it is can shoot moa or sub moa almost all of that is at 100 yards take it out to three and see what the groups look like i will tell you that they would be very very disappointed because a lot of guns can shoot very well close range, you know, 100, 150 yards. But you start stretching it out a little bit, and that's where you see really the difference in a lot of ammunition. A USGI ball ammunition, you know, genuine USGI ball ammunition is really high-quality stuff. Uh, we learned in World War One we had crappy ammo. It was crappy, and I think it was by the late twenties, early thirties, it shot up all of that stuff. And they made a commitment. And in the next war, we had probably the best ammo of by far of any country. You know, U.S. ball ammunition is really um, what other countries would consider match ammunition. And I will also say that is why. The Moisin again has got a terrible reputation for accuracy, kind of undeserved. Uh, but part of that is is because hey, the ammunition for it was, you know, the ammunition for it was mass mass produced, and it was never designed to meet those the accuracy standards that we in the United States would hold. So consequently, the rifle is not going to be nearly as accurate, even though um, if you had genuine 7.62x54R match ammunition, uh, the rifles would shoot a lot better. And there was some sniper ammunition and a few things, um, but if you had light ball ammunition, which is what you're supposed to use in the rifles, if you had that, um, you 
could effectively, you know, shoot very, very well. Uh, their match ammunition and sniper ammunition probably is the almost the equal of U.S. ball ammunition. That's just that's just the way it is. I mean, and and that's because their tactical requirements were a lot different. Even after World War II, um, it was mass quantity, and they knew, just like everybody else knew that you know your combat ranges are a hundred meters or less so why waste all of the uh, resources doing that um, making long-range ammunition for a battle where you're never going to use that capability so but those of us in the surplus world um, we get disappointed with the Moise Nagant and its surplus ammo at longer ranges because you know, it just uh, it doesn't keep up with a U.S. rifle and U.S. ball ammunition. So anyway, uh, that's that's the deal. Um, I would also say that you have with Moisen against you also have, you know, kind of the production thing. The production was pretty, pretty good, pretty standardized, but you can get some bore diameter variations. Um, eight millimeter Mauser is also excellent, but um you get a variety of ammunition in that too even some com block ammunition in it so it can suffer from some of the same maladies okay here's our last question have you seen the smith and wesson folding nine millimeter carbine that's based on the mnp pistol you know i've seen pictures of it it looks very much it, it is the same type of weapon as the Keltec Sub 2000, which I've made a lot of fun of. Um, not because it's a bad weapon, but because when they made the big hoopla about sending them to Ukraine, I thought it was a joke. I thought it was stupid. If you're in Ukraine, the last thing that's you're going to find useful is a nine millimeter semi-automatic fold-in-half carbine. Um, so anyway, uh, but does that weapon have a niche? Um, obviously, Smith and Wesson thinks so. Um, I don't have here's the deal a lot of guys who are poo-pooing both that and the sub 2000 um, the Smith & Wesson and the sub 2000 I don't really see them for what they are these these are not primary weapons they're not as good as a Ruger PC carbine they're not as good as some of the other uh, um, options out there uh, but they are more compact and if you have that overriding need for something very compact um, then you know it's not a bad it's not a bad uh, um, alternative um, you know something that can fit in a backpack backpack is pretty pretty nice to have uh, again kind of going back to that question of what do you carry in these non-permissive environments um, if you have that in the back of your car, you it's not going to draw a lot of attention, you know, especially if you buy an old scroungy you kids used backpack, you know, something that was carrying school books for a year. Maybe it even has Scooby-Doo on it. I don't know. Um, you know, you got that in your trunk with a couple loaded mags and, and, and the other stuff. Um, you know, you, you've got something there. It's something you could throw on your back. And if you had to E and E out of an area, uh, you're not carrying a long arm that everyone can see and everyone knows you have. And if you see 
trouble ahead of you, you could duck into an alley or duck into a safe place, deploy the weapon out of the backpack, and, and kind of be ready to go. It's it's not going to be like it's instantaneously ready, like you're holding it. But, you know, other uses for this, maybe it's something you put in a small airplane as a survival rifle, you know. I don't know that anybody's ever used those. They've designed lots of those types of things over the years, but I don't know if anybody's actually used one, but that would be one use, I would I would think. So I have not seen it, and I am loath to dismiss it right away as being something bad. Same thing, with the, and, and all of these remarks go with the Keltec also, you know, whatever, whatever it is. And especially, I think some of these have at least adapters, but they have options to where you can use, you know, um, Glock magazines or Beretta magazines or something. And, you know, that is all a good thing. That is all a very, very, very good thing because you can, um, you know, have a weapon, have it concealable, small in a package. And while it is not a great weapon, it is something that you could, you know, defend yourself uh, with. So I'm not really willing to poo-poo it. A lot of people are, but I'm just, I got a wait and see attitude. Apparently they sell enough of the Kel Subtech 2000s Keltec sub 2000s so we'll see we'll see how it shakes out but anyway that's it for this edition of old school guns the podcast that tells you exactly like it is and if you have any questions or comments send them to me at kbmakel at aol.com kbmakel at aol.com or you can leave them in the comment section on podbean but until then until the next time This is Old School Guns, out.